to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. We humans have always experienced an odd and oddly deep connection between the mental worlds and physical worlds we inhabit, especially when it comes to memory. We're good at remembering landmarks and settings, and if we give our memories a location for context, hanging on to them becomes easier. To remember long speeches, ancient Greek and Roman orators imagined wandering through memory palaces full of reminders. Modern memory contest champions still use that technique to place long lists of numbers, names, and other pieces of information. But how does the brain encode that memory? That's what scientists are starting to uncover. Philosopher Immanuel Kant said the concept of space serves as the organizing principle by which we perceive and interpret the world, even in abstract ways. Kim Stackenfeld is a neuroscientist at the British artificial intelligence company DeepMind. It's really beautiful. There's all these quotes that people sprinkle into their talks about how riddled our language is with spatial metaphors for reasoning and for memory in general. I was at a talk recently and somebody quoted the phrase, I couldn't place him as like, I couldn't remember where it came from. We use spatial metaphors for housing our memories. We read little short stories in English class about how somebody was navigating the rooms of their memory as they were getting dementia. It is nice when these conceptual cognitive ideas really start to connect with the very low-level neural data. In the past few decades, research has shown that for at least two of our faculties, memory and navigation, those metaphors may have a physical basis in the brain. A small seahorse-shaped structure, the hippocampus, is essential to both those functions. And evidence has started to suggest that those functions might use the same coding scheme, a grid-based form of representation, Recent insights have prompted some researchers to propose that this same kind of coding can help us navigate other kinds of information, including sights, sounds, and abstract concepts. In the most ambitious theories, these grid codes could be the key to understanding how the brain processes all details of general knowledge, perception, and memory. Our understanding of the importance of the hippocampus to memory began with someone that the medical literature once referred to only as patient H.M. In 1953, Henry Molayason was a 27-year-old man who underwent a risky experimental surgery to cure a debilitating case of epilepsy. A neurosurgeon removed his hippocampus and the surrounding tissues from deep within his brain. This alleviated some of his seizures, but inadvertently left him as a permanent amnesiac. Until his death more than a half century later, H.M. couldn't encode new memories. He couldn't remember what he'd had for breakfast. He couldn't identify someone he'd been introduced to just a few minutes earlier. He couldn't remember the Christmas gift his father gave him. He basically couldn't recall anything specific that relied on personal experience. H.M.'s story is tragic, but it revolutionized scientists' understanding of the role the hippocampus plays in how the brain organizes memory. Over the next few decades, the separate identification of two types of cells in the hippocampus set off another revolution in neuroscience and brought the discoverers a Nobel Prize. 
The behavior of the cells made it clear that the fundamental functions of the hippocampus included not just memory, but also navigation and the representation of two-dimensional spaces. The first discovery came in 1971. Researchers uncovered place cells, which essentially fire to indicate your current location. John O'Keefe, a neuroscientist at University College London, and his colleagues monitored the brain activity of freely roaming rats. In his Nobel lecture at the Karolinska Institute in 2014, O'Keefe said he expected that these hippocampal cells would fire for all sorts of memories and all sorts of stimuli. Instead, what we found is that the cells were only interested in a very specific type of behavior that the animal was engaged in. They weren't, in fact, interested in most types of memories. They weren't, in fact, interested in most types of behaviors. They were only interested in where the animal was in the environment. O'Keefe and his colleagues observed that some of the rat neurons fired only when they were in specific parts of their cages. For instance, some became active as a rat sniffed around its enclosure's northeast corner, but otherwise remained quiet. Others fired in the cage's center. The cells were coding for some aspect of space. They didn't care why the animal went there. They didn't care what the animal did there. By and large, it was really where the animal went. Together, these place cells created a map of the entire space. If the rat was put in a different cage or room, these place cells remapped encoding the new locations. Here's John O'Keefe in his 2014 Nobel lecture again. What we said was, these findings suggest that the hippocampus provides the rest of the brain with a spatial reference map. And if you didn't have this map, the animal didn't have this map, it couldn't learn to go from where it happened to be in the environment to a particular place independently of any particular route. It didn't have a flexible representation to produce flexible behavior. Psychologist Edward Tolman first put forth this idea in the 1940s to explain how rats could find new shortcuts to rewards and mazes. At the very least, the hippocampus seemed like a promising place to start looking for hints of such maps. That work eventually led to a then-married pair of scientists at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Maybritt Moser and Edvard Moser directed their attention to the interrhinal cortex, just next door to the hippocampus. The region provides major inputs to the hippocampus. It's also one of the first areas of the brain to deteriorate in Alzheimer's disease, which affects both navigation and memory. There, the researchers found what they called grid cells. Experts now think these grid cells may be the most compelling candidate for cognitive map maker. Here's Edvard Moser explaining them at a speech last year at the annual Lindau Nobel laureate meetings in Germany. These cells, they contain information about uh, both distances and directions, and if you use combined input from them and feed that to computer, you can very easily, just like for place cells, but actually more accurately tell where the animal is. Unlike place cells, grid cells don't represent particular locations. Instead, they form a coordinate system that's independent of location. That's why they're popularly known as the brain's GPS. Each grid cell fires at regularly spaced positions, which form a hexagonal pattern. Imagine the floor of your bedroom is tiled with regular hexagons, all the same size, and each hexagon is divided into six equilateral triangles. 
As you walk across the room, one of your grid cells fires every time you reach a vertex of any of these triangles. Different sets of grid cells form different grids. These include grids with larger or smaller hexagons, grids oriented in other directions, and grids offset from one another. Together, the grid cells map every spatial position in an environment, and any particular location is represented by a unique combination of grid cells' firing patterns. The single point where various grids overlap tells the brain where the body must be. This kind of grid network constructs or encodes a more intrinsic sense of space than the place cells do. Place cells are useful for navigating where landmarks and other meaningful locations can provide spatial information. But grid cells encode a good way to navigate in the absence of such external cues. In fact, researchers think that grid cells are responsible for what's known as path integration. That's what enables you to keep track of where you are and what direction you're going, even if you're blindfolded. Jakob Belmund is a cognitive neuroscientist at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany. He studies spatial navigation and is familiar with a grid code. The idea is that it could be some sort of metric or coordinate system because you can basically measure distances with this kind of grid code. Plus, because of how it works, that coding scheme can uniquely and efficiently represent a lot of information. And it's not just that. The grid network is based on relative relations. So it could, at least in theory, represent not only a lot of information, but also a lot of different types of information. Yuri Busaki is a neuroscientist at New York University's School of Medicine. What the grid cell captures is a dynamic instantiation of the most stable solution of physics, which is the hexagon. Perhaps nature arrived at just such a solution. It may have enabled the brain to use grid cells to represent any structured relationship, from maps of word meanings to maps of future plans. Neuroscientist Kim Stackenfeld says she's been thinking about how the hippocampus and interrhinal cortex machinery could have a more general purpose. Like how you could take information coming in from lots of channels, even information that's not necessarily spatial information, and process that with hippocampal and enterhinal machinery. The idea that hippocampal and enterhinal machinery are ubiquitous through the brain has some similarities and some differences. It's, I think, still related to this idea of these being a more general cognitive function. The idea that I've been most captivated by in this research is the idea that grid cells might be representing structure more generally and ubiquitous across different instantiations of tasks. That's a really powerful idea that you can have a representation of structure in general and then apply it rapidly to new situations where that arises and behave a lot more efficiently and learn a lot faster. Since researchers usually couldn't take direct measurements of individual neurons in their test subjects, they had to get clever with their methodology. For example, in 2010, neuroscientists figured out a certain kind of signal to look for in functional MRI scans of the brain as an indirect signature of grid cell activity. This hexadirectional signal emerges as people navigate a virtual environment. It also characterizes other tasks, some spatial, some not so much. One of the earliest examples came with behavior that fell somewhere between the two, the navigation of visual space. 
When researchers looked at monkeys that were tracking images with their eyes alone, they found evidence of grid cell activity in the interrhinal cortex. More recent work in humans has uncovered the same hexadirectional signature. And some experiments have even pinpointed other, more direct properties of the grid code already observed in physical navigation tasks. Similar principles may also guide how the brain encodes time. The hippocampus has already been found to contain place cells that behave as time cell neurons in certain situations. They activate to indicate successive moments in time. Cognitive neuroscientist Jakob Belmund says rats would run through a maze. One section involved trotting in place on a wheel or treadmill for a predetermined number of seconds before continuing onwards. What the authors then observed is that some cells in the hippocampus and in the entorhinal cortex were active always at a specific time point of this delay. During the interval when the rats ran in place on the treadmill, cells fired in their hippocampus to track their temporal progression. Bellman says some neurons were active for the first few seconds, others for the next few, and so on. So basically the idea was that they create a map of this temporal delay where you can basically use the firing to track your progression through the delay. So this was some evidence that these place cells and grid cells could maybe also encode other dimensions of our experience. And so that was very interesting to kind of bring time as a different dimension into the equation. More recently, work published in Nature last year turned up evidence for a coding system that uniquely represents time in the context of memories or experiences. May Britt and Edvard Moser led a team of researchers to uncover a coding scheme for time. The scheme spanned multiple scales, from seconds to hours. So far, no one's been able to draw an explicit link between temporal organization and grid cells. But scientists have seen hints of a connection. For instance, grid cells mark the passage of time for rats running on treadmills. Last year, a team of scientists at Princeton University brought yet another potential dimension into the mix. Sound. Rats were exposed to a tone. Then they were given the task of pushing a lever that would change the frequency of a second tone to match the one they heard previously. The researchers monitored the rat's brain activity while this was going on. Their observations hinted that the rats might be mentally navigating through an acoustic space in their minds to find the desired tone. Perhaps the most tantalizing of all was an experiment conducted in 2016. It introduced a far more abstract context for grid cell behavior. The researchers were led by Timothy Behrens, a computational neuroscientist at the University of Oxford. They had people watch the silhouette of a bird on a screen as the length of its neck, the length of its legs, or both were stretched and compressed. FMRI data showed the hexadirectional signal in several areas of their brain. It varied just as if the test subjects were navigating a two-dimensional bird space, where one axis denoted neck length and the other leg length. The findings suggest that the brain processes trajectories through physical spaces and conceptual spaces in much the same way. Now, researchers including Behrens, Belmond, and neuroscientist Christian Doller propose that all knowledge can be plotted this way. 
different objects, different experiences, and different memories can be organized and traversed with the grid code. Here's Belmond again. There's also these kind of grid cells in what we call visual space, so basically mapping your field of view. And there's evidence for the hippocampus also being relevant for visual perception. And now these ideas about sound frequency that it might also map these kind of dimensions. So it seems to be quite arbitrary what dimensions it can map. The very interesting thing is that it seems to be so general across domains that the mechanism seems to be sort of preserved. Tomas Volbers is a cognitive neuroscientist at the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases. He calls into question the idea that grid cells simply constitute a pure location signal, hardwired and specialized. Maybe it's a much broader signal, a much broader kind of dimensional code that can be observed in many different situations. And so far we've only just seen it in space because we have only looked at navigational tasks or paradigms. But maybe it's much more ubiquitous phenomenon. One area that's seen some intriguing preliminary results is in social behavior. We think of society in spatial terms all the time. There are social ladders to climb, networks to build and expand, people we consider close or distant. Now, some research groups are probing social relationships for evidence of the grid code. One recent study built up a two-dimensional space not unlike the bird silhouette experiment. People played a computer game, interacting with characters in ways that could change their levels of power or affiliation. The researchers found that the hippocampus seemed to track the positions of the characters in that space relative to the test subject. The experiment didn't determine whether the hippocampus is navigating that social information in a grid-like way. But Matthew Schaefer, a graduate student at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, is working on the project. He expects to find the telltale hexadirectional signal. He and others are now studying how that navigation might be disrupted or otherwise affected in people with conditions like autism. These ideas could make it worthwhile to pursue clues hidden in other kinds of spatial metaphors, too. Neurons beyond place cells and grid cells might also have something to contribute. There are head direction cells that fire when an animal points its head in a particular direction. Speed cells indicate the rate at which one moves through space. And boundary cells represent the location of walls or other environmental borders. Studying these neurons in more abstract contexts might yield new insights. For instance, boundary cell activity has been reported for not just the borders of a physical space, but also the borders between separate events in a temporal sequence. Could these neurons also play a role in forming borders between concepts or in creating distinct domains of knowledge in the brain? Or could head direction cells help us orient ourselves within a given topic? Such analogies have huge potential. The same goes for gaining a better understanding of diseases and other states. Tomas Volbers and his colleagues recently published a study about grid code changes in elderly people and how they can impair their spatial navigation. And what we found is quite interesting in that kind of this grid cell signal was still there, but it was temporally unstable, meaning that the orientation of the grid kind of was unstable over time, so it kind of fluctuated kind of back and forth between different orientations. The researchers found that people with less stable grids were also much less adept at keeping track of their relative location when blindfolded and led along a winding course. Volbert suggests this. 
If the grid code is used to process many kinds of information and memories, it's possible that a pathology that destabilizes the spatial grid system might also have a more general effect on the stability of memory and other areas of cognition. It's definitely a very interesting claim, and it leads to a lot of testable predictions. But I guess at this stage, the available data is still scarce. So we have to be cautious. Kate Jeffery, a behavioral neuroscientist at University College London, agrees. I think the spatial interpretation has certainly been very strong and certainly nobody has really demolished it entirely. But I think there's still quite a few people who are willing to believe that place cells do more than just place. Sure, the brain might use a common system to encode spatial and non-spatial knowledge if the latter can be represented as varying continuously on a two-dimensional scale. But it's also possible that some cognitive tasks are so complicated and unnatural that the brain is forced to rely on a spatial analog as a crutch to get through them. Jeffery says it may be that the experiments on sound frequency and stretched birds tapped into this feature. So to further cement the grid code's broader applications, Researchers first hope to figure out how these cells may be working in more than two dimensions. After all, higher-level knowledge tends to involve far more than pairs of qualities, like neck length and leg length, or power and association. This is something that's being examined in flying bats, which navigate through three dimensions rather than just two. Some researchers are making even bolder claims— Jeff Hawkins is the founder of the machine intelligence company Numenta. He leads a team that's working on applying the grid code not just to explain the memory-related functions of the hippocampal region, but to understand the entire neocortex. With that, it may be possible to explain all of cognition and how we model every aspect of the world around us. Hawkins has what he calls his thousand brains theory of intelligence. Everything that the cortex is doing is not processing sensory input alone. It's processing sensory input and applying it to a location. It knows where it is in the world. Hawkins says he jumped out of his chair with excitement when he first thought of the idea. Unlike Cartesian coordinates we learned in high school where you have an X, Y, and Z, the grid cell reference frames are unique for every room you're in. So what we think is going on is the same basic thing is happening in the cortex, but instead of mapping where your body is in a room. The cortex is mapping where its inputs are in a reference frame of the object it's observing, or the object it's perceiving. So there's a space that's defined by grid cells, a local section of the cortex, that you can say there's a space for a coffee cup, and there's another space for the stool in my office, and the chair, and my computer, and so on. All these things, everything, there's thousands and thousands of these spaces. When you recognize an object, it's like recognizing a room. If I'm touching an object with my finger, that's equivalent to where's my finger on the coffee cup is directly analogous to where is my body in the room. So as my finger moves relative to the coffee cup, even if it's not touching the coffee cup, even if I just know it's near the coffee cup, and I'm perceiving the coffee cup, it knows where my finger is as it moves around. The same way the grid code allows you to know your body's position in the room. Hawkins thinks the same logic can apply to anything with a structured framework. On its own, you can say, well, it's almost certainly that all cognitive functions, everything we do, planning, mathematics, physics, language, is going to be based on the same principle. I believe that's it's going to turn out to be like we're on a cusp here where all of a sudden we're going to have a new paradigm for how to understand how the brain works. 
While the hypothesis has piqued interest among other researchers, they remain skeptical that grid cells will be found beyond the vicinity of the hippocampus. They say Hawkins and his team have a long way to go to prove the power of their model. Still, it provides a good starting point for thinking about how to improve artificial intelligence. If the grid framework is indeed a general one, it could be mimicked to build machines that are far more flexible, creative, general, and powerful. The field is just starting to grapple with these notions. For now, researchers are continuing to look into the activity of the hippocampus in a bunch of different contexts. They hope to finally unite its memory and navigation functions once and for all. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowicz's full article, The Brain Maps Out Ideas and Memories Like Spaces, on our website, quantamagazine.org. The brain's pretty fascinating, and you can learn more about it in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now wherever you buy books and to listen to on Audible.